Lord Jesus, as we open your word, as we open the book of Daniel, we would be foolish to do it lightly. So we pray that tonight you would speak, hear the prayers of our hearts. Open us, break us open and teach us. And let us leave here having received uh, a word from heaven. As the rain falls from above, may the message come from above. In the name of Jesus, amen. Let me introduce tonight this way a story of an Italian juggler. He came to the States and became famous during the circus years for his juggling. He was unequaled in his abilities. At the end of his career, having amassed now quite a savings, he decided to pack it up and go home, go home to Italy. He sold everything he had, purchased a cruise, one-way ticket to Italy, and the rest he invested into a single diamond. So he could pack light, he boarded his ship. Somewhere along the journey home, in, an, in a little conversation with a, with a six-year-old boy, the now-retired juggler began to, to just show him a few tricks. Ah, why not entertain the lad? And, he, and the boy was so enthralled, and it got bigger and more. And, and, then, and then a crowd began to gather on the ship deck. And, and so more and higher and fancier went the juggling. And then the decision was made. I, I really, I, the woo and the ow just, just kind of enraptured him to, to, to where he lost his senses and he, he said, I need, to, I need to do something that will really get him. So hold, telling them to hold, he, he ran back to his, his uh, stateroom and gathered, ga- grabbed his diamond and, and ran back to the deck and, and told them the value that, that this meant to him and, and, and said, look, I'm going to throw this in the, in the middle and I'm going to juggle this thing through. So up it went. Everybody holding their breath because of the, the significance of this diamond. And then the, the attention, the crowd caught him. And he said, all right, one more, one more, and I'm done. I will throw this so high, the diamond will disappear. Oh, no, 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 cried the crowd. Don't do it. And that just, that just invigorated him. So one last act, and he would put it away. He threw the diamond in the midst of the items he was juggling. And it really did disappear for a moment in the sunlight. Pretty soon it reappeared. And as you can guess, there was a stumble, a misstep. The diamond bounced off the railing and into the Atlantic forever to be lost. The storyteller poses the question then, have we been playing with something 
so incredibly valuable and treating it with indifference, almost. So let that color your vision tonight. We're going, we're, we're going to just jump through a couple of chapters because the narrative kind of stretches itself out a little bit. In these last few nights, we've, we've done the, the fiery furnace. We've done the, the, the lion's den. We've, we've done the Nebuchadnezzar's dream and his losing his mind. But now we're, we're going to kind of s- stretch out through the next few chapters. Daniel chapter 8, probably the the most operative and well-known passage in Daniel chapter 8 would be, of course, verse 14. Daniel chapter 8 and verse 14. You've got your Bibles. You want to turn to Daniel 8, and then we're going to move into verse chapter 9. He said, the heavenly messenger, the holy one speaking, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated, cleansed, some versions right. In the context of which he, he's talking, some Bible scholars have already said, look, there's the day for a year principle in Bible prophecy. Sure, sure, sure. But it's actually in the context even clearer, indicating that there will be 2,300 evenings, evenings and mornings of the Day of Atonement. Meaning, uh, similar to, to if you were to, if, if we were to say, well, it's going to be five Christmases. You would say, well, each, right, there's one Christmas each year, five years. And so in the context, it's very clear that this is a, this is a long-range prophecy. And Daniel understood that immediately. He didn't need to, to know that, that there was a day for a year prophecy, uh, prophecy. He didn't need to know that. He understood in the context that it was 2,300 days of atonements. And that sent him into a tailspin. Why? Because he understood that the cleansing of the sanctuary, that that represented an at-one-ment, an atonement, at-one-ment with God. And that was a burden on his heart for himself and for for his people. And so this became very important. I I don't know if we could actually communicate how important this became. That day of atonement, that cleansing of the sanctuary was the pinnacle of the system as they understood their relationship with God. That's the day that they became right, completely right with God. That was their their at-one-ment, indicating an eternal at-one-ment. And so Daniel's struggling at 2,300 evenings and mornings and the sanctuary will be cleansed. A reconciliation of God and man. Here's what I fear. You know what we've done? Beloved, let let me just be honest. What I I believe we've done with this passage, it will take 2,300 evenings. Okay, let's talk about the timeline. We don't even read the rest of the passage about the reconciliation or the cleansing. We don't even even wrestle or communicate. We just want to talk about when that will be. And that's important, beloved. I I don't want to diminish that. Only to diminish it, to to say it, it has to be within the proper context. We know the when, but we've just kind of passed by the what 
This was incredibly important to Daniel. The at one minute. Now we're going to just jump right into uh, to chapter 9. Everything else. Daniel is now operating in this context. At one minute with God. 2,300. What is going on? That's everything else became background noise almost. Verse 3 of, of Daniel chapter 9. Just a page over in my Bible. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. Did you? Wow. So I turned to the Lord and I pleaded with him in prayer and in petition and fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Daniel, Daniel begins this wrestling with God. God, I've got to, I've got to understand you. Will you hear my prayers? Daniel chapter 9 is actually flooded with prayers. It's the most repeated word in the chapter, prayer. Verse 3, again verse 3, twice, verse 4, verse 17, again in verse 17, verse 18, verse 20, verse 21, verse 20. It's the most repeated word in prayer. And what we know from our basic Bible reading class is that whenever something's repeated, it's emphasized. It's meant for emphasis sake. It's meant to communicate something. Daniel chapter 9 coincidentally contains one of the longest prayers in the Bible. Not as just the, the word repeated, but it's one of the longest prayers in the Bible. You have Nehemiah, you have one of his prayers, you have Solomon's prayer uh, for the temple dedication, and you have Jesus' prayer in John 17 for us. And then you have Daniel's prayer. These are the long prayers of the Bible. And not as if to say long as it makes a prayer better, not at all, but it certainly consumes space in scripture which is to say this is an important moment what's really going on in the heart of Daniel is a cry for God's people to be God's kingdom to be reconciled to be atoned with God he's he's pleading for his people he's pleading for others We've used this word several times before, tribalism. It's a word that's gaining, gaining significance, not just in, the, in a Christian context, not in, a, in, a, in our community of faith, but in a world. They're talking about tribalism, not between us, uh, between countries, between one nationality, but between people groups of ideas. People with my ideas are my tribe. And we don't like your tribe. But Daniel here, he doesn't see any of that. He sees the people of God in desperate need to be atoned with God, at one with God, reconciled with God, to build up the kingdom. And so he prays. He prays for those he disagrees with. For those who are sinning, he intercedes for those. Daniel Verse 3, I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition and fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. The other night we talked about Daniel in the lion's den, how he prayed three times a day. And we've always, um, we, come on, I just, misery loves company. I have always just 
Picture this kind of morning, noon, and night, nice prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for waking me up this morning. What a beautiful day. Thank you for, and I pray that you'll be with my, my aunt, Sue. You know, she's a little ill. And, uh, and bless me. Uh, thank you for your blessings. Uh, on a total aside, a little bit of a soapbox, if you take the word blessing out of your prayer, you will find yourself forced to have real conversation with God. Now, I love the word blessing, but it has handicapped many a prayer. Lord, thank you for your blessings. Please bless us now. What were you thanking God for, and what are you asking for? Well, I haven't thought of it. I just went from one. It, it sounded like a good word. You take blessing out of your prayer, and, and you are forced to have real conversation, which is what I think God dreams of. Okay, so back to Daniel. He prays these nice little, we have kind of just all, I have always just assumed it was these nice little prayers of a couple of minutes. But Daniel chapter 9 and verse 3 kind of unpacks how this prayer warrior prayed. He pleaded with God with prayer and petition and fasting and sackcloth and ashes. If Daniel is the prefiguration of the final generation. Uh-oh. Daniel chapter 9 is saturated with this idea of Daniel wrestling with God, pleading with God. Let's go to just to verse 4. Well, let me, let me jump ahead to verse 5 and 6 first. This is the heart of, of the prayer. And then we'll jump back to verse 4 here. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and your laws. The confession, God, we need help. And some of you who have interest and have looked at the needs, how Revelation paints the last church, the final generation. It's this church that doesn't confess very well, that is kind of satisfied with where they're at. They're not pleading with God with sackcloth and ashes and fat Fasting? I work on a high school campus. <laughs> we, we talk about week of prayer with the students, and, and we say, well, could we be praying and fasting? Fasting? So these kids, I love these kids. These kids come up with ideas. Okay, Pastor, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fast from fruit juice this week. <laughs> I wanted to say, why don't you fast with just fruit juice this week? I'm not trying to, uh, fasting is, is not for every time and every place, and, but it speaks to the absolute seriousness that Daniel took. He was wrestling for that atonement, that atonement with God, not just for himself, but for the people, for the community of faith. Dear God, save us. We have sinned. Ironically, Daniel and Joseph are two characters in the Bible that not one of their faults are ever mentioned. But Daniel is placing himself in the context of, of the people. We, God, have sinned. I'm best at praying for your sins. 
They have sinned, God. But he labored with God because this was reconciliation with that final generation, the people, the church. That's the heart of the prayer. Daniel isn't taking this lightly. He isn't juggling with the diamond. Well, you know, it's, it, it works. It's, I have it. It's, he's not treating it indifferently. He knows this is life and death. So that's our part. Verse 4 is God's part. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. This is a covenant-keeping God. It, it really means, it, to simplify the, the original expression here, Daniel said, God, you're the one that's going to keep this covenant of love because we're not. Covenant and love are connected with a conjunction expressing one single meaning. It is a covenant of love. The idea is one of sustained loyalty, commitment, love. God, you have never let us go. You listen to the rest of the language, the rest of the chapter, the language in the rest of the chapter, and you get this picture. God, we have let go, but you have never let go. And this is all on you, God. While Daniel took it seriously and labored with God in prayer, he knew that it all depended on God and his faithfulness. It wasn't his faithfulness. He had rebelled. They had rebelled. And at the risk of overstating something, I want to remind you that this is as much a part of biblical prophecy as is Daniel chapter 8 and verse 14, under 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. This is a process in which that takes place. And if we just want to skip ahead to just dates and times, we will be incredibly intelligent about the facts, but never participating in them. When I said that Daniel knows that this is all God, that it's God's covenant of, with us that's going to hold this together. It's God's faithfulness. Just a couple of, let me just point out a couple of references here. Verse 17. Now our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, for your sake, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. This is on you, God, for your sake. Your reputation is at stake here. It's your name, not my name. It's your sanctuary. Verse 18, give ear our God and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. The basis of Daniel's prayer, of his wrestling with God, of his petitioning, his, his fasting, his sackcloth and ashes was because of God's faithfulness, because of his great mercy. Because of his covenant of love. This is the context in which Daniel responds to the message that there will be an, a cleansing, an, an atonement, at one between God. Daniel is living in exile. He knows what it's like to feel this separation and he doesn't want it anymore. 
we getting too comfortable? Are we getting too comfortable? Where we don't see ourselves in exile anymore. Maybe that changes our prayer life. Daniel chapter 9 and verse 24. You remember those 2,300 years. We get down to verse 24 and it says 77s. We call them 70 weeks. But literally 77s are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone at one minute, right? For wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. That's given to Daniel in the context of his prayers, laboring with this idea of atonement, at one minute. I want to be at right with God. The whole 2,300 years is this timeline. I love it. Why did God, why did God spell this out? 2,300 years and then, hey, here's 77 or 70 weeks, 490 years that are cut off uh, of that, those 23 or a part of, I guess maybe better said, of those 2,300 days. And if this is not something familiar, that you're familiar with, what are you talking about? 2,300 days, what are you talking about? And forgive me, where I, I, I'm intentionally not Spending time, not because it's not important, but because I felt we have sometimes understood that and nothing else. And so at the risk of being unbalanced, I'm, I'm, I'm laboring with only on one side. But the, the whole 2,300 years and the 70 weeks that are part of that is a timeline of our salvation. I love it. It's where God says, listen, I want to give you absolute confidence in, a, in this at one minute that you will be. I'm going to map it out for you. We have this little practice in our home uh, with, with our children. We'll tell them to get a piece of paper. Hey, what, what are we doing today? What are we doing today? And you know, you parents know how that works. Mommy, mommy. Daddy, daddy. Well, let's be honest, it's mostly mommy, mommy. But they ask, what are we doing next? What are we, we going to do today? They're little social butterflies. So what are we, we going to do next? So we have them get the paper, and they draw out a check list of, of the activities for today. Okay, worship first, and then breakfast, and then school, and then... And they can check it off through the day. That's what God gave to us. Listen, I want you to know how this story of your redemption is going to play out. It wasn't so we could know the future. It's so that we could track ourselves in the timeline of our own redemption, our own salvation. I see how God's going to do this. Because in Daniel, he's laboring. Oh, God, how are you going to ever fix this mess that we're in? We're so rebellious, so wicked. We're living in exile. How are you going to fix this? And so God lays out for Daniel the story, the timeline of our redemption. It's all about our salvation. All about the atonement, the atonement with him. And he maps it out. First will come, next will come, and in the midst of the week, there will be a Messiah, and all of this, and then there will be, and then we'll go way ahead, and then there will be a cleansing of the saints. And this is how it's going to work. 
He maps it out for us almost so that we can have that checklist on our refrigerator. Ding, 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 ding. That's what this whole story is about. The death of the Messiah is, of course, central to the passage. You might find this something new, but Bible scholars on the book of Daniel speak of Daniel chapter 9 as the one of the, they'll say, because you know how scholars are, they're anything but absolute, one of the most Christ-centered chapters in the entire Old Testament. In the heart of these prophecies comes the most Christ-centered chapter in the whole Bible. And how? How is it connected with us? It's connected with the most repeated word, prayer, 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 prayer. If I was just a casual reader, I could walk away with Daniel chapter 9, seeing the timeline of our salvation, seeing the timeline of our atonement with God, our atonement, and think, well, what part do I play? Uh, Clearly, the part I play is prayer. You want to know why the devil hates prayer? Why the minute you kneel down and begin to labor with God in prayer, he will remind I've had the most fascinating things happen. You'll be praying, praying, God, I'm I'm going to give an hour to prayer. Ten minutes in, you remember who stole your pencil in third grade. And then you remember, oh, yeah, his guy, his Steve. And Steve, his sister, Rita. I wonder what ever happened to Rita. And 45 minutes later, you kind of, why am I thinking about that? The devil, the devil says, I, I knew I couldn't get you on something bad, so I just, I just dropped a few. The devil hates prayer. Why? Because Daniel chapter 9 and the timeline of our salvation, our response, our response to this is not to worry about it, but to labor in prayer for ourselves and for others. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, he, the Messiah, the Messiah will confirm a covenant with many. Many. It's an, it's an expression of universality that this Messiah will come for the for the world, for everyone. A contemporary of Daniel. It was actually the very work that Daniel was studying was Jeremiah. Jeremiah declares, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. What does that sound like? In one word, atonement, at one minute with God. They will be my people. I will be their God. And Daniel is studying the work, the writings of Jeremiah. He's being excited. I want that to happen. I want the people of God to be at one with God again. Daniel becomes exhausted in his prayer. It's consumed. And so Daniel chapter 10 then presents this picture. If you were to to look at the narrative of Daniel 10, he becomes tired and weak he's wrestled three times a messenger shows up and greets him with the same Hebrew greeting it's verse 23 Daniel chapter 9 verse 23 Daniel chapter 10 verse 11 and Daniel chapter 10 verse 19 
And the greeting is, Hamutat Ata. Hamutat Ata. That's the greeting that the divine messenger gives to Daniel every time he comes. It's, it's an incredible expression. It has a very masculine side to it, but it has a very feminine side to it. Literally translated, Hamudatata, you are preciousness. Yeah, I know. <laughs> That's for the girls, right? No, Daniel, you are preciousness. It's, it's this idea that you are highly esteemed. It's, the, it's, a, it's a comparison or it's a comparable to the, the, the expression in Psalms. You are the apple of his eye. In Spanish, la niña de su ojo. That's this expression as the divine messenger comes. Daniel is labored with God. Please, God, forgive our rebellion. Reconcile us to yourself. This is the most important thing to Daniel. And this reflects, beloved, back to Daniel chapter 6 in his prayer life. When we were back to, oh, it was not nice. He prayed three times a day, morning, noon, and night. No, the reason that they knew he was praying was because of the way he prays. He pleaded with God. He wrestled with God. He labored with God. And the people, the, 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 the conspiracy guys outside uh, his building, they didn't ever have to see him. They heard him pleading with God. That's the kind of prayers. Was the lion's den any problem for Daniel? Not at all. He had wrestled with God already. Daniel, you are precious. You are highly esteemed. You are valued by heaven. Hallelujah. If Daniel represents, if he prefigures the final generation, then you can imagine heaven. Oh, these are our valuables. Heaven can't keep their eyes off of us. We are the most valuable possession to heaven this final generation. We become the heroes. That's, that's what it really communicates. When the, when the divine messenger comes down to Daniel and says, Daniel, you are preciousness. It really means you are our hero. Daniel became the hero of heaven. And verse 12, Daniel chapter 10 and verse 12. And he continued, after you are preciousness, he continued, do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and, you have and I have come in response to them. Heaven responds to the prayer of petitioning, of wrestling with God. Uh, God values our prayers. But we have succumbed to a laziness, a nicety in our prayers. Meanwhile, Daniel, what was really happening while you were praying? Why is it important that we are wrestling and we are pleading with God? Because the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me, Daniel. 21 days for three weeks I wrestled with the prince of Persia. But because you humbled yourself, Daniel, because you humbled yourself, 
This whole drama is so much less about Satan and what he's doing and so much more about God's faithfulness and his covenant with his people. We have made prophecy, beloved, we have made prophecy into just what the devil's doing. Ooh, disaster, that fulfills prophecy. No wonder nobody wants to hear prophecy. It's all about what the devil's doing. Except that's not really how God meant it. The 2300-day prophecy, the 490-year prophecy, part of the 2300-year prophecy, that was all a timeline of our redemption. Prophecy was not to tell us how Satan was going to work things out, but how God was going to work things out through his covenant with his people. Yes, Satan is a part of it because he's resisting God's work and he's blaspheming. But the real hero of prophecy is not Satan, but God himself. For you Bible students, I'm just going to add a, a little thing here and, and just let it kind of sit on your mind. Daniel 7, 8, and 9 are a unit. Daniel is just such a, a complex and creative book. Daniel 7, 8, and 9 are a unit. But then Daniel 9 is, introduces the new unit of 9, 10, 11, and 12. And we're going to get to that. But Daniel 7, 8, and 9. And Daniel 7, of course, ties into the previous unit of Daniel 2 through 7. Remember Daniel 2 and 7, the chiasm? They are thematically comparable, and then Daniel chapter 3 and Daniel chapter 6 are comparable, and Daniel chapter 4 and Daniel chapter 5 are comparable. And so here's a unit, Daniel 2 through 7, and then 7 introduces the new unit while it ties into the old unit, 7, 8, and 9. And the 9, while it completes the, the middle unit, also introduces the final unit. Such an, an incredible presentation. But 7, 8, and 9, this is just, just for those interested. The rest that we're just saying, hey, come on, keep going. Just give me a minute. Daniel 7 introduces God as king. Daniel 8 introduces God as the priest. And Daniel chapter 9 introduces God as the sacrifice. In our Western way of thinking, we always reason from cause to effect. The ancient Semitic people, they reasoned from effect back to cause. And so Daniel 7 introduces a king. Well, how did he become king? Because he served as a priest in chapter 8. And then how, how did that work as a priest? Well, because he was also the sacrifice in Daniel chapter 9. And so it reverses the order. King, priest, sacrifice. But this unit then presents how God works out our salvation. He becomes the sacrifice and atonement. We call it justification. He becomes the priest. Through sanctification, he guides us, and finally he is king and glorification. But the ancient Semitic understanding took it from effect back to cause. That's just if you enjoy 
that kind of complexity. The final generation, though, Daniel chapter 9 and 10, interwoven in the prophecies, the much, much more space is given to the actual how. Daniel praying. And the timelines are given, and the Messiah's, the, the story of our redemption is laid out. But the timeline is actually the, given the least amount of space. Almost as if God says, if you don't get the timeline, you'll still get to, the, to where I need you to be. But if you get the timeline and you don't get the how, if you don't get the heart change, I'll lose you anyway. I referenced Chris Hodges, the senior pastor of the Church of the Highlands there in Alabama who wrote uh, The Daniel Dilemma. And he pleads through his book, listen, take inventory of your life. Check yourself tonight. If Daniel is a representative, if he is a reflection of the final generation, how is your prayer life comparing to Daniel's? These stories don't just tell us what happened to Daniel, Chris Hodges writes, but serve as a prophetic picture of what our lives are to be today, the final generation. It warns us and encourages us. Daniel, in the midst of this story of our redemption, the prophetic timeline that, that ended in 1844, this cleansing of the sanctuary. What is that all about? What is the pre-advent judgment all about? It's about atonement, bringing God back into full reconciliation. Oh, I said that so wrong. Bringing us back into full reconciliation with God. At one minute with him. God's goal in this whole thing is to bring you and me as if we were we were. Together, one, forever. You're going to hear this line a couple of times from you. You'll hear this line. If we're friends, we'll, you'll just keep hearing this line. My favorite lines from the writings of Ellen White are found in Patriarchs and Prophets. And it's at the end of a chapter called A Night of Wrestling. God gave me that chapter in a night that I was wrestling with him the entire night. I was walking the streets of my, my community just pleading with God. And, and I came back as the sun began to rise and the, the, the darkness began to turn to dawn. I came back to my room and I fell down by my bed and pleaded with God, God help me. And the patriarchs and prophets were sitting right there, and I opened, and of course, the, ch the chapter, night of a night of wrestling. It's Jacob's story, right? We're going to talk about this again tomorrow night. But my, these lines just jumped off the page. The greatest victories won to the individual Christian or to the church of Christ, both to me personally and to us corporately. The greatest victories, the greatest victories, beloved, 
one to the individual Christian or to the church of Christ are not those gained by talent, education, wealth, or the favor of men. The very things that every church says, if we just had more of it, we could do more. We would be better off if we just had more wealth, more favor with men, more education, more talent in our church. Then we could really impact the world. The greatest victories won to the individual Christian or to the church of Christ are not those victories gained by talent, education, wealth, or the favor of men, but they are those victories gained in the audience chamber with God when by earnest, agonizing faith we lay hold of the mighty arm of power. The final generation will experience the greatest victories. Oh, how? Thanks for asking. They will... They will experience the greatest victories the same way Daniel did in Daniel chapter 9. Prayer, pleading, prayer, intercession, prayer, prayer, prayer. It's the most repeated word in Daniel chapter 9. The most Christ-centered chapter in the Old Testament is also the most emphatic about prayer for the final generation. It's a prophecy that the final generation will not be lost, will not be confused, will not be distracted in the scuttlebutt of the world, in the politics of Babylon. They will be bent in their prayer life, laboring with God. How does verse 3 say? So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition and fasting and sackcloth and ashes. How's your prayer life compared to the final generations? To Daniel's. It's not our faithfulness in prayer that will win God's favor. It's not that at all. Daniel just says that's our response to God's covenant of love. His faithfulness draws out of us this pleading and this prayer and this petitioning. We labor and we wrestle with him. But it's not our prayers that save the day. It's his covenant of love. You, great and awesome God, in verse 4, you keep your covenant of love. That's what saves us. Come on, have you ever heard the story of the mountain man? Deshrath Manji. Have you ever heard his story? Crazy story. Uh, printed it out and brought it. Deshrath Manji. He's passed now back in 2007. He was known as the Mountain Man. How did he get that name? He fell in love with a young woman. He was a vegetarian, by the way. That's not relevant to the story, but in 1959, so a few years ago, the love of his life, his wife, fell climbing a mountain and sustained some serious injuries. In order to get her to a doctor, it took, it was 34 miles. They had to carry her on a cart. They pulled her to get her to medical care. Partly because of a mountain that had no pass. There was no road or trail going over it, so you, you went around. You had, just had to go around. Deshraf Manji lost his wife because it took him too long to get her to medical care. Shortly after her death, he was found up against the mountain, the mountain that stood between them and medical care, with a pick and a hammer. And he began to pick away at the mountain. 
not a pick, a, a chisel. People began to call him crazy. He's lost his mind, lost his wife, lost his mind. But day after day, he chiseled away at the mountain. Pretty soon, people began to feel sorry for him and bring him food. He was very gracious, and he kept going. Then his tools wore out, and people resupplied his, his chisel and his hammer over and over and over and over. He worked day and after day. At the end, 30 years later, well, it was 20-some. I'll round it up. They say, not exact, but between 22 and some 28 years, the story goes. He worked on that mountain. And before he died, he had opened up a 30-foot passage wide, 30-foot wide, straight through the mountain. It took medical care from being 34 miles away to be nine miles. He actually got honored by, by his face on a stamp, the country of India. The reason, the reason he worked day after day with his chisel and his hammer was he was determined that not one more would be lost because they wouldn't have access. Not one more would be lost like his wife. And before he died, several decades of chiseling away, he got to see the accomplishment, the fulfillment of his dream. If Dashrath Manji, if a mere man can be so committed like that, imagine, imagine the commitment from heaven to make sure there's not one that is lost. That's the story of Daniel chapter 9. And that, that so stirred the heart of Daniel when he saw the covenant of love and the Messiah and, and, the, and the role that that would play and the timeline that was given. It moved him with such passion and such a burden for the lost that he pleaded with God for forgiveness and for reconciliation of the people. Daniel's heart became God's heart or like God's heart pleading let's not lose one more our prayers for the world my prayers for the world let me just confess, my prayers for the world must get a whole lot serious, more serious, a whole lot more committed, a whole lot more radical. I have two sisters that have walked away from their journey with Jesus. I pray for every night.
God often taps me on the shoulder and says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to hear your prayer for them. But somebody else is praying for their brother or their sister in your community. Will you be the answer to their prayer? This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.